You can open with me to the book of Zephaniah, and our books are getting harder and harder to find as we walk through our series on the Minor Prophets. So welcome to week nine of our Come Back to Me series. It has us walking through the Minor Prophets as God is calling His people back to Himself. And as we walk through this series, we have continually seen a balance each and every week between God's judgment and His salvation, between God's anger and His compassion. And of course, the book of Zephaniah is no different. The phrase, the day of the Lord, appears in this book more than any other book in the Old Testament, clarifying the picture that Habakkuk said we saw last week that um, Judah would fall to the Babylonians, but also the day of the Lord is the eventual um, judgment of God upon the nations in the future when Christ will return. So this is kind of where we continue to go in the Minor Prophets and this week, as I was uh, preparing the message and really thinking things through and think about where we are, um, I was reminded of an embarrassing moment, something that happened to me, and I'm sure you would rather me not tell you about my embarrassing moments, or maybe you would love for me to tell you about my embarrassing moments, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, so the, the story is 1995, December of 1995 at Liberty University. I was there. Um, my wife was there as well, but she was not my wife then, just my girlfriend. And I think we were getting ready to come back um, home for Christmas break. And so we decided to go to the bookstore um, so that we could find out, you know where I'm going with this already, so we could find um, some, some things for Christmas to bring back to our families. And uh, so we were there looking, and I'll, I'll never forget, Misty, it was a cold day in December, and she was wearing a, a black overcoat. And um, so we were looking together and kind of talking, and then things got quiet, and I kind of kept looking at things. And then all of a sudden, in the corner of my eye, I see the black overcoat just right there next to me. So, of course, I grabbed her hand, and I looked over to her, and it was not her. And of course, me, you know me as I'm smooth, I'm slick, I can find my way out of every situation because that's just who I am. So in that moment, I panicked and said, you're not my girlfriend. As I kept holding on to her hand, I'm sure she thought this is like the worst pickup line ever. And eventually I let go and I walked over to Misty and I was like, you'll never get, let's go, just go. We'll come back later um, to get our stuff. I was embarrassed. But so apparently I took my eyes off the one that I loved and the one who, um, by God's grace, loved me back. And instead I found myself grabbing um, a hold of one who neither loved me or one that I did not love. And it was a very, um, it was a very good reminder this week that that is us. We are so quick to let go of and take our eyes off the one who loves us first. The one who is worthy of our love. And instead we grab a hold of things that don't love us. And things that aren't worthy of our, our love. And we grab a hold of those things. And we need to let go of those things for the sake of, of true love and what God has done for us. And let, me, let me just say this this morning. Many people ignore the minor prophets because, of course, they do not like the type of God that is clearly revealed in them, which is ultimately a holy God who is loving, who is just, who is wrathful, who is forgiving. And many people love three out of the four of those. They, they love a God who is, who is um, loving, a God who is just, who will get justice, a God who is forgiving. They do not like the God who is who is wrathful, a God in that way. Yet there is, and think about this, there's little question in our society, the world that we live in, the wrath of God is the most offensive doctrine imaginable. 
To our world, it seems harsh, it seems judgmental, it seems backwards. In fact, many Christians, we find ourselves thinking that we have to apologize um, for the, the wrath of God. Some view it as a blemish on God's character. Others think that it's inconsistent with a God who would be loving. Let, let me just say this this morning. There is no need for us to ever apologize for God. Ever there's no need for us to apologize for God's word. The Bible says more about God's wrath than it does about God's love. The Bible, Jesus himself said more about hell than he did about heaven. And we might try to speculate as to why and try to lessen that truth, but no amount of reasoning can change that truth. The Bible is filled with warnings about God's wrath and about eternal judgment that is coming. God has made no secret of his wrath and neither should we. God doesn't apologize for his wrath and neither should we. And so the standpoint when it comes to the wrath of God, we will either choose to appease man and water down the word of God or we will choose to believe God and hold high the character of God and all that he is. So what will we choose? I pray that we will choose to hold high the character of our God so that as we make this truth known, many will flee from the wrath that's coming. I mean, the problem is we have set ourselves up in today's society as we are the judge, God is on trial, and so we begin to ask questions such as this. How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a good God ever create such a place as hell? Why does God always seem so angry? And we ask these questions, and the fact that people even ask those questions or struggle with those questions means that more than ever before, we need to think rightly about the doctrine of God's wrath and what that means. And just think about the distinctions here. God's wrath does not mean uncontrollable rage, God's wrath does not mean vindictive bitterness. God's wrath does not mean that God is out of control and that he has altogether lost his temper. In fact, as we see over and over in the word of God, God is slow to anger. Remember a few weeks ago when we asked the question, what would it mean for us if God were not slow to anger? You know what it means for us? Bad news. Yes, we are done. We, are, we would be done for if God were not slow to anger. God doesn't lose his temper the way that we do. So don't confuse the wrath of God with the wrath of man. They really do not have much in common at all. But here's the thing. Because God is holy, God cannot overlook sin. God does not wink at sin. God does not pretend that sin is not there. In fact, think about this. Wrath is what happens when holiness meets sinfulness. Wrath is what happens when justice meets rebellion. Wrath is what happens when righteousness meets unrighteousness. Wrath is what happens when that which is altogether perfect meets that which is altogether evil. As long as God is God, he will not, he cannot overlook sin. He cannot dismiss lightly those who trample upon his name as long as God is God he will not allow those to mock his name so with this kind of uncomfortable uncomfortable background um, we're now going to turn to the book of Zephaniah um, a book which Zephaniah declares that the judgment the wrath of God is coming but also holding out the possibility for refuge for mercy for grace and for us to be able to think of something and hear something that sounds so unbelievable, but yet it is possible because of God's grace. 
So I'm going to ask those that can to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 and skip to verse 14 and uh, just and read on from there. So beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Why do you not seek the Lord or inquire of him? Be silent before the Lord your God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Look at chapter 2, um, 1 through 3. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word and we come humbly. Lord, you are God. You make the rules. Father, we are not. And Lord, we don't want to question you today. Lord, we don't want to, in a way of, of disrespect or a way that we put you on the stand, God, we want to honor you today. We want to believe you. We want to press into you, Father. We want to see how, how your wrath goes perfectly, Lord, along with your grace. And God, we want to see that you are who you um, forever claim to be. You are just, you are holy, you are forgiving, you are loving, you are wrathful. And Lord, we don't have to apologize for any of those things. God, just speak to your people today. God, show us the, the glory and the beauty, Father, of this book. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And again, you may be see this. So the issue that kind of rises up from the book of Zephaniah, remember, as we've said before, our goal in going through these books is not to unpack every single detail in every single book, but to take a few of the things that rise to the top and really focus on those. So um, kind of the issues that come forth from the book of Zephaniah are two questions. And those questions are this, what do you think that God thinks about you and what can you do about it? So what do you think that God thinks about you? Meaning, is God happy with you? Is he disappointed with you? Does God only tolerate you? 
Is God in love with some future version of you once you get your act together? Is that kind of where it is? Or what can you do about it? Can you influence the way that God thinks about you? Can you make God love you more than he does right now? Can you do anything to change the plans that God has for you? And these questions are huge questions because they're questions that dictate a lot of the way that we think about God. And remember, how we think about God determines how we live. It determines most of our lives. And it determines how we we live and respond to God and to um, others. So these questions form some of the deepest and most significant parts of our lives. What does God think about us? What can we do about it? So to answer that question, we're going to, or those questions, we're going to look at the book of Zephaniah, and some have called this book um, the gospel of Zephaniah because what rises to the top in it? So um, Zephaniah gives us or helps us to learn at least three things about God. That's why we are calling this message God is. So God is showing us three things about God. And as we learn these three things about God, perhaps we will discover joy, we'll discover refuge, we'll discover hope in the midst of these difficult warnings that God gives. So the first truth is this. God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin. If you read the first two-thirds of the book of Zephaniah, you're going to walk away not feeling better about yourself, but worse about yourself. You're going to walk away going, man, that did not hit the emotional chords in my heart and make me feel better. In fact, I feel worse as a sinner than ever because of reading through um, the book of Zephaniah because it displays how God feels about sin. Just think with me. Think about what sin is. So sin at its core is when the glory of God is not honored. It's when the holiness of God is not reverenced. It's when the greatness of God is not admired or the truth of God is not sought. It's when the beauty of God is not treasured or the goodness of God is not savored. It's when the faithfulness of God is not trusted or the promises of God are not believed. It's when the commandments of God are are not obeyed or the wrath of God is not feared. It's when the grace of God is not cherished. It's when the presence of God is not prized. And it's when the person of God is not loved in our lives and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and just hear this think about this this isn't fun to think about but our sin marks us as targets of God's wrath so our sin your sin and my sin marks us as targets who are awaiting the wrath of God So just in our total sinfulness, that is who we are. Look at chapter 1, verse 7, makes that very clear to us. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Look at verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. Now think about this. The world is filled up with people that says, if there is a God, he won't do anything God won't do anything bad. Um, He probably doesn't do much good. He's just there. And people think that about him. Then think about verse 15. So look at verse 15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So somebody has summarized the book of Zephaniah like this. 
It is one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment found anywhere in Scripture. So chapter 1, three times in chapter 1, God promises to sweep away the sinners. Twice he promises to cut off them. Once he says that he will stretch out his hand against them. Twice he promises to punish them. So these, the verbs that we're talking about here says it all. God is sincere in his judgment against sin. This is bad news. And this is exactly what most of the world chooses to ignore and what many are afraid of, that God is angry at sin and because God is angry at sin, he will punish sin. And let me just kind of rephrase what we just talked about earlier, that many people today have a hard time accepting that God could be harsh. In fact, let me say this. The, the problem with our sin is that we love to accept a God who is loving, who is forgiving, who has only good planned for us. We love that kind of God. But guess what we don't love? In fact, guess what we hate? We hate the idea of a God who could judge and hold us responsible for our sin. We push that kind of God away. We don't want to hear about that kind of God. And in fact, when we do that, we find ourselves lining up with some of the heaviest atheist of the day. Just listen to how Richard Dawkins describes God. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, Racist, genocidal, pestilential, capriciously malevolent bully. And maybe we wouldn't go that far. I pray we would not go that far. But many of us struggle with a God who would be angry at sin. A God who spends most of a book like Zephaniah warning about judgment that's going to happen because of sin. And what do we say about this? What do we say when people say, how can God be so angry at sin, or God's such a bully, or God's this, or God is that? And just think about this. Think about how we feel when we see sin ravaging the life of someone we love. Just think about someone you love, and think about sin ravaging that person. Would we respond with indifference, or would we respond with passion? And I think the answer is it depends on whether, whether we truly love them or not. If we don't love them, then we're indifferent about what sin does to them. But let me tell you this. From the standpoint of my wife and my children, I am zealous. I am zealous for, for them not to be carried away by sin. For sin not to have its way in their lives. I'm zealous for that. I, I'm Angry for that. I won't sin to stay away from them. Just imagine. Think about this. Think about human love offering an analogy for us. Human love offering this analogy where if a father would so um, desire his son to be, to be free from sins of, of drunkenness and lying and, and being a lazy or a traitor or, or atheistic and just desiring that not happen. And think about this. If we... So we in this room, if we who are flawed and narcissistic, if we can feel pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more can a morally perfect God who made us feel that way concerning us? 
If we can get upset when we see sin having its way in someone's life, how much more will God, when he sees the cancer of sin eating away at those that he made and those that he loves? You know, in our, in our sinful humanity, let's be honest, we want to hear that sin is not that big of a deal. And we want to hear that God is not that concerned with it. Yet the reality is, is that Sin is far worse than we could ever imagine, and God is going to deal with it far worse than we could ever, ever wrap our heads around. We must face the severity of our sin, and we must face that if we have any chance of recovery. God is not just some sentimental old man that winks over our sin and acts like it is not a big deal. I hate the fact that many in today's world, um, and many professing Christians hold this banner that in the end, love wins. Love wins. And we hold that as if, and what people mean by that is this, because God is love, in the end, God will let everyone in heaven, and it doesn't matter what they do with Jesus. The problem is, let me tell you the problem with that, it's not biblical. The, the kind of love that wins in the end, let me tell you, is a holy love. The kind of love that won at the cross is a holy love. The kind of love that wins the world is a Love that's driven, determined, and defined by holiness. We don't serve a weak God. We serve a powerfully holy God. We can't domesticate him. We can't make him more like us. God is angry at sin, and he is serious about sin. And sin is not something that exists on the outside of us. Sin is who we are to the very core of us. And the only way that we are able to have that sin removed from us and, and have the, the penalty and, and the, the power of it broken is through him. And this is really bad news for us, especially for those who refuse to deal with it. But God is serious about sin. But thankfully, there's good news. The second truth is this. God is gracious to the sinner. Okay, that should have got more than three amens. Um, for, for those who don't consider yourself as sinners, then you're in trouble and you will never understand God's grace. But for those of us who know what we are and know who God is, then when we hear words like God is gracious to the sinner, we realize he has been gracious to us. In spite of the worldwide outpouring of God's wrath, God will extend his grace until that day. In fact, God is extending an invitation for any who, will, who might hide in him, who might take refuge in him. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3 again. Chapter 2 and verse 3, it says this. Just, just think about the heart of God saying, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of of the Lord. And what that doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that if you trust God, perhaps God might um, hide you. No, what it means is perhaps you might be wise enough to hide yourself in him. And on that day, be hidden in him. It's speaking of us. So here's what we know. Although God is deadly serious about sin, God is amazingly gracious to sinners. He's amazingly gracious to sinners. We need to, we need to see how God's grace overcomes our guilt and our shame. In fact, think about this. You know what guilt says? Guilt says, I have broken the law. 
You know what shame says? I am broken. Guilt says I have done something wrong. And shame says something is wrong with me. And yet God has graciously dealt with us in our guilt and in our shame. We need to rejoice and what God has done for us. Look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. Here's where the good news happens. Sing aloud, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. Look at verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time I will bring you in. In the words of the great hymn, we are talking about a grace that is greater than all of our sins. Do we really understand the majesty and the beauty of the grace that we have been given? Let me just say this. If you don't understand the grace that is yours, then you will look everywhere and hold on to everything, trying to find life in those things. But the beauty is this. You don't have to go out looking for joy. You don't have to go out looking for forgiveness. You don't have to go out looking for something that will cast out fear because if you are a child of God, all of those things are already yours because of grace. And if you're not a child of God, those things can be yours by His grace. In fact, think about this. Grace is the most transformational, powerful word in the Bible. Grace explains how a holy God has reached his holy hand into the muck and mire of our fallen world through the presence of his son and has brought us who were dead in trespasses and sins. He has brought us to life in him. We are saved by his grace and we live by his grace. Grace is the reason that we have been invited to come to God and grace is the way that we are able to come to God. In fact, think about this. Grace will expose our sin, making us more uncomfortable than we've ever been in our lives. And yet at the same time, grace will cover our sins, making us or giving us greater comfort than we've ever known in our lives. Grace will bring an end to all of our kingdoms, the things that we have built for ourselves. And grace will introduce us to the king of all kings and bring us into his kingdom. Grace enters our life in a moment and grace occupies our life for all of eternity. This is the grace of God. This is how God responds to us, by His grace. And let, let me say this, yet many people still struggle with God's grace. In fact, there are some that maybe here this morning that are saying, yeah, I know I'm forgiven. I know God's forgiven me, but how does God really feel about me? What does God really think about me? I know He loves me because of the cross, but does He really love me? I know God accepts me because of Christ, but does he really accept me? 
And there's a final truth that I think we must hear as God's people. So think about this. God is serious about sin. God is gracious towards the sinner. And then the third truth is this. God will sing over his saints. God will sing over his saints. Look at verse 17 with me. Look at that amazing, think about that truth. God will sing over his saints. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine what it would be like for God to be singing over you? Can you imagine what that would be like? Remember, with just merely a spoken word, God brought the universe into being. So what would happen if God lifted up his voice and began to sing? What would that look like? In context of the book of Zephaniah, many people have said perhaps that will look like a new heaven and a new earth is what that might look like. So when God spoke at the beginning, the heavens and the earth, when God sings at the end, a new heaven and a new earth, yet don't miss the personal in the present context here, that God sings over his own. In fact, think about this. The voice of God that sings over us is the booming voice of the Niagara Falls. It's the blast of Mount St. Helens. It's the power of a hurricane. It's the unimaginable roar of the sun that is 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth and nothing but fire roaring constantly this is a powerful voice that we are talking about and yet when this voice sings over us as powerful as it is there is you will not find a more tender more loving a more peaceful and purposeful sound over you than that it is powerful it is peaceful it is roaring yet it is loving all over us. Think about this. Think right now. Take this question and sit it right in your lap. Can you imagine? Can you believe that God is literally singing over you in this moment? Can you believe that? Or do you push that away as if, yeah, that might be true of you, Pastor, but it's not true of me? Just listen to what John Piper says. We must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom. As though Christ found a loophole in the law and did some fancy plea bargaining and squeaked us by the judge. No way. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on he puts a ring on our finger, he kills the fatted calf, he throws a party, and he shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation. This is our God. God rejoices over us. He exults over us and, and singing. Can you feel the wonder of that today? Maybe you're here today and maybe you would say, no, I can't because I'm, I'm guilty. God would never rejoice over me. You don't know what I've done. I would say this, will you not believe verse 15 that says the Lord has or the Lord has taken away the judgments against you? Will you not believe Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? If you believe that, can you not now feel the wonder that the Lord is singing over you? 
Maybe you would say, I can't because I have too many things are against me. Too many enemies, too many circumstances against me in this moment. Well, then will you not believe, verse 15, that the Lord has cleared away your enemies? Or verse 17, the Lord is a mighty one who will save? He's mighty to save. He's mighty to take care of your enemies. Can you not then understand that he is rejoicing over you? Maybe you would still say, I'm trying. I'm trying everything I can, but I can't feel His presence. He feels so far from me. I try to press in. I try to know Him, and yet it feels like He's so far away. Will you then not believe, verse 15, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst? Or verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is not far from you. He is with you. And if you are his, he is in you. So then can you not feel the the wonder that the Lord exalts over you in singing? Maybe you would say no because the guilt and the shame is still there. In fact, all I can hear is condemnation. That's all I can hear is condemnation. All the things that I have done wrong. It's all I can hear. And I would say to you then, would you believe verse 19? And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise. Let me read that again. I will change their shame, that which is wrong with me, into praise. That which is right with me, and that is Him. And that is His doing. Can you not then feel the wonder that God is singing over you? And maybe you're still arguing this morning and maybe you are saying, I'm trying so hard and I'm doing everything I can possibly do to get this right, but it's still not enough. I just can't seem to make this happen. And I would say to you then, will you believe verse 12 of chapter 3? But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Is that not how you feel right now? Humble, lowly before this God. And then he says this, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Is that not our only hope? So put aside your pride. Put aside your boasting. Take refuge in the name of the Lord. Bank all of your hope, not on your ability or not on your righteousness. Bank all of your hope on Christ's ability, what He has done, and on His righteousness alone. And let yourself be called up in the magnitude that the Lord, the King of all kings, the Holy One, rejoices over you with gladness and exalts over you with singing. In fact, I want to put one more verse up on the screen. I want you to, to see this verse. It's Ephesians 3.17. I want you to, you can look at it in your Bible. I want you to put your finger there and you can underline it. You can start. You can do whatever it is um, to make sure you uh, let this verse get your attention. But Ephesians 3.7, or excuse me, not Ephesians, uh, Zephaniah 3.17, it says this, the Lord, meaning Yahweh. The self-existent God. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping, covenant-remembering God. The self-sufficient one. The Lord, your God. Elohim, meaning your creator, your sustainer. The one who made you, the one who holds you. That God is in your midst. He is here among us. He is with us. He is a mighty one who will save. He is mighty to save. Think about this. God is not just willing to save. 
he's able to save. He is able. There are times where I think about situations, I'm willing, I'm not able. God is willing. He is able. He's mighty to save. Then it says this, he will rejoice over you with gladness. I love this line. He will quiet you by his love. There are some of you here this morning that you are, your soul is it's not at peace. It's not quiet. It is disturbed. That your soul is restless. You've got so many things that are going in and out that are just restless and disturbing to you. And listen to this word. He will quiet you by His love. He will bring you into His heart. He will bring you in. You will hear His heart beating for you. And then he will exult over you with loud singing. Oh, do you hear the magnitude of that today? Will you believe that today? That this God is in our midst. That he is mighty to save. That he will rejoice over you. That he will sing over you. And that he will quiet you with his love. Oh, to God, you will believe it. And oh, to God, you would take refuge in him. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to call the musicians forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say that whatever it is that God is telling us to do, that we would, we would do it. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we just come again to you asking you to finish this time in a way that only you can. God, help us today. Lord, those that are here today that know you, God, help us to, to understand how you feel about us. God, that we can't do anything that will make you love us more than you do right now. That you are rejoicing over us. That you're exulting over us and singing. God, help us to believe that. Quiet our hearts and our souls with your love in this moment. Father, I pray for anyone in this room, God, that has not yet taken refuge in you today would be the day of salvation. Today they would understand that they are guilty before you because of their sin. And because of their guilt, the only thing they have to look forward to is your wrath. And God, that's nothing we would ever want to look forward to. But God, it's coming. And Lord, the reality is anyone who will stand before you and be condemned to hell will never be able to blame you. And anyone who will stand before you and be invited into heaven will never be able to take the credit. It will be about what you have done for us through your Son. So today I pray, God, for any that don't know you, today would be the day of salvation. They would turn from their sin, turn from trusting in themselves, and turn to Jesus Christ, trusting Him as Savior and Lord. God, finish this time today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.